shit, shit, shit show. It's a fucking shit show. All right, y'all. Well, welcome to the very first rendition of Shit Show Saturday. <laughs> I I created this podcast not just to talk about this stuff that people don't want to talk about, to, but to fully embrace our entire stories, to fully embrace our entire shit shows. So today I am joined by Shit Show Scott. Shit Show. It's kind of hard to say. Shit Show Scott. Shit Show Scott. Welcome, Shit Show Scott. Hello, Ashley. Andrea. Andrea. Hi. Boo. Hi, Andrea. Yeah. Boo. <laughs> It's okay. It's it happens. At least you didn't call me Andrea. Up. If you had called me Andrea, I would have cut the recording off. Um, first question for you. What song do you want played when you walk into a room? You know, the song I've been playing all the time is Rushes the Trees. Okay. <laughs> there is unrest in the forest. There is trouble with the trees. So what's your favorite condiment? Mustard. What's your favorite carb? all of them okay that's an acceptable answer <laughs> i've been doing a lot of uh, tortilla shells with uh guacamole <laughs> and salsa and cheese that's my next question what's your favorite cheese i love gouda me too i love smoked gouda gouda is like the shit <laughs> okay what was your dream job as a kid I don't know. I still want to be a forest ranger. Okay. That's a good to still happen for you. Next question. What is your pet peeve? I got a lot. Um, <laughs> my pet peeve. Trust. I mean, I, I, uh, no, give me something like, Oh, like when somebody chews the gum with their mouth open or when somebody like leaves the cabinet open, give me like a, give me a, you know, a petty pet peeve. Oh, s- slow drivers. Slow drivers. Fuck them. Oh I'm like, if you're, if we're not doing 80, we're not going fast <laughs> enough. <laughs> okay. Next. Give me your best impersonation. Even if it's not your best, just give me one. I always like how Christopher Walken talks in any kind of movie that he does, because, you know, he's got this thing of ways talks about his family. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's uh, kind of a guy I admire. And there was this thing with all these things that we can't say anything bad about. You know, you can't say anything bad about swords like machetes. Everybody's woke about blades. You know, <laughs> axes get a bad name. You know, and, uh, you know, hedge trimmers. They're, it's all woke. You know, it's very <laughs> upsetting. I don't understand. <laughs> you kind of have like a slight Borat twink. It's like Christopher Walken with a slight Borat. <laughs> so good. Okay. Last but not least, would you rather start every sentence with Hey idiot or end every sentence with ha ha, just kidding. Ha ha, just kidding. I think I would go, hey, idiot, because like if you start every sentence, end everything with haha, just kidding, like nothing is ever going to be conveyed. You would have to like make sure everything you say is like the opposite of what you're trying to convey. <laughs> well, hey, idiot, it's better because you get their attention right away. Yeah. Hey, idiot. I think that that's a term of endearment. Yeah. Right? No, I think, yeah, I'll go, hey, idiot. You can- okay. Thank you. I convinced you. <laughs> 
Um, so how did you find the podcast? Um, actually, I was um, reading uh, Pete Walker's um, Surviving and Thriving book. And um, what was interesting about that was I think that was kind of like my first introduction to complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. And within that, I was, um, I had actually Googled uh, complex PTSD on uh, Spotify. I had, because uh, it, it was, uh, the uh, subject was really interesting because what was coming up with that was the terms of emotional abuse, mm-hmm. abandonment, mm-hmm. Uh, verbal abuse, and um, some bullying, uh, gaslighting. You know, I, I think those were things that really spoke to me and that really were part of my experience. And when I when I first listened to your podcast, I was like struck by the when you opened it up that you didn't experience sexual abuse or physical abuse, but you had these other kind of manifestations. And I was reading it. In, in kind of in conjunction with Pete Walker's book, I, I was like, um, you know, this is kind of my experience. This is what I'm feeling inside. And I didn't really understand, didn't really realize that the repetitive and chronic nature of those, those things are kind of a suppression to your nervous system and to your, to living. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, well, I think what was really beautiful about your podcast and I had listened to traumatized motherfuckers too, but that was a lot more. (laughs) Yeah. It's on Spotify too, but it's more of the neurological stuff. And I think I, what I really like about yours and the, your interviews is a lot of times you're talking about the emotional, um, the, the emotional aspect of it that, and how that separates us, you know, our body gets separated from our emotions or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, "Wow, I can put a name to my how I'm feeling," and mm. that was real. That was really, really liberating. And I've only been kind of on this complex PTSD thing since uh, for six weeks now. I had been studying trauma beginning of June of last year, and I. I had ordered uh the body keeps the score and i had read that mm-hmm. and i had given it to my uncle right around christmas time and then he had called me up he says oh my god dude this is just amazing mm. so when he called me about it and he had he had experienced some you know his third wife had died from a drug overdose and he had seen people die in car collisions and stuff so it was kind of like this awareness to his, to his experience, you know, and, you know, I think a lot of times we're conditioned to just like suck it up and move on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, and I think we go through life and we don't really understand ourselves and how these things are impacting us. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that was really manifesting when I was married was I would have the holidays and I would get together with this step family, but they weren't my family. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I always felt disassociated from my, I felt really, really guilty that m- my mom and dad got divorced and they were separated from one another. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had years and years of this kind of just creeping guilt that I couldn't keep my family together. 
I didn't know really my identity regarding it, the holidays. And, and my, my ex-wife did yeoman's work keeping us all together for as long as she did. But I, I had an internal struggle for years about who I was and, and, um, and, what, and what my identity was. And so, so over the last nine months as I was studying trauma, I started kind of like digging into the past. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was just in the last six weeks, I also read Mark Wolin's book, and I did a lot of the work on that. And um, what I thought was really valuable in that doing th- through some of the exercises is that, you know, I was doing a lot of work with my dad. And that work was related to um, being oppressed by him. My dad had a very bad anger. He had rage, you know. And I kind of know why my mom and dad got divorced now. Is How old were you when they got divorced? Um, I was 17, 18. I think he was hit. He was seeing someone at 17. Okay. And, and um, he had met somebody locally and. And, you know, my, my senior year of high school was really a, a shit show. And um, I had gotten a girl pregnant. My, my friend had died um, earlier that year. I, I just was a transplant. I was living out in Green Acres and moved out from Chicago up there. And I just was a fish out of water, really uncomfortable. And, and the problem with being in country life is everybody knows your business. Mm-hmm. And living in the city, which I did until I was 14, I was like, you know, you have a certain amount of anonymity. You know, you don't, people know, don't know what you're doing. And, and then you're self-conscious enough as a teenager where you're just like, and then you just feel like, you know, you, I've just had these two, I've had three really big events. My friend dies, my parents are falling apart in this, in this girl. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think in my, in my family, you know, regarding the girl was really kind of useless. I mean, I just, we were just trying to figure it out. My dad never said anything about it. It was like, I, I don't know if he knew how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And, um, cause I think my, my dad was focused on wealth and money and, you know, as we were doing, as I was reading Mark's book and, I had asked my dad why he was still alive. He passed away in 2018. What I found out also is, is that my, my dad suffered some sort of trauma from my grandfather. I think he was a harsh disciplinarian. Um, and I think that, I think my dad's sense of control was needed to, um, to work. Because mm-hmm. if he could work, he can control it and he could get the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, and I, I firmly believe that that was what happened. You know, I don't think he was he had the toolbox to um, for ca- self compassion. You know, mm-hmm. um, I th- I think that his toolbox was if I earn enough money, no one could hurt me. Mm-hmm. And I, and I I'm pretty convinced of that now. Um, you know, and I think what's really good about what you do too is is like you know there's like a forgiveness I can give for that because you know I think. A lot of times you say it is like the only thing that we can do is really heal ourselves. If we can heal ourselves, then, you know, it just flows out of us. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why I think listening to other people's stories on your podcast is really like super important because, you know, I think that it all resonates with um, 
how your experience, you know, and, and it, it's like a tool, it's like an emotional toolbox. It's like, oh, I can relate to that. And, you know, I think the one thing that, you know, especially if you're not necessarily an AA, but you are dealing with this emotional kind of trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think it's, I think it's really good to give a voice to it because I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we, without sharing like this, I don't know if we would have that capability of communicating those, those emotional traumas. Absolutely. I mean, that's why, I mean, a large reason I wanted to do it is I just think that there's so many people out there that are oblivious, especially those of us who didn't, who weren't physically or sexually abused, or we don't think anything, we don't think we were subjected to any trauma. So what role did you play in your home growing up? Well, the, one of the memories that I have often is, is that my dad and I were emptying the trash and I was probably, this is probably like starting eight, nine, 10 years old. And, you know, the one thing that I witnessed is my dad would, if he got upset with me, so he'd raise up his fist and then he'd like had this biting of his lip thing. And, um, and I saw that often, you know, and he never hit me, right? But looked like he wanted to. I did a little stint in AA back in 2011 and um, I had seen my dad at the time. And, I, and I, it was the first time that I asked my dad what happened to him. And um, he was like, yeah, you know, I got, I got beat by my dad. My uncle tells me a story that one time my grandfather taped my dad to a chair. So I was like, oh, okay. And my grandfather, to meet him, he's like, a, well, he's deceased too now, but um, really gregarious guy. You know, I mean, I guess he, a ladies man or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it, my impressions of him were pretty good, but, you know, I think there was, I think, I think my grandfather had some trauma too. You know, there's, there's different stories about what, what his experience was, whether or not he was an orphan or not, but there is this pattern, you know, there is this pattern and I got kind of really fervor about it because what I wanted to do is I wanted it all to stop with me. I, I remember reading this Henry Rollins quote and when he was talking about his dad and he's like, when people are asking him why he didn't get married or why he didn't want to have kids. And Henry Rollins was like, I want my DNA to end with me. So what laundry list trait caused you, has caused you the most damage in adulthood? Well, I think poor boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there was, I was just going with the flow with a lot of things because I really didn't know my identity. Um, You know, I think the anger that my dad had, was it kind of an invalidation of the self of me invalidation of me? So, you know, and I, I have a couple of instances when, it, when I was in college, you know, where I could really use the help and there was no help forthcoming. And, you know, and I think, I think as a parent, I think, I think it's really important that you know, that you tell your kids that you're there for them. And, you know, there was, my dad wasn't equipped with, can I help you? Do you need something? You know, and it could have been a few hundred bucks. It could have been some money. In this particular case, what what it was, it was my mom had put up like $16,000 away from me to go to college. And um, my dad, via my mom, my mom, I think they were still married at the time or they were on the verge of, they had, it, they had a business that folded. And um, my mom calls me up and she goes, uh, hey, do you, um, can we have that money so we can pay off these debts? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's not your money. 
Um, so I'm like, sure, I gave it up. Um, and then like a year later, I get a tax bill from the IRS because they cashed out and they're like, it was like $3,000. And I called the IRS up and I said, you got to call, call my dad because he's the one that used the money. And that was, and that was, you know, I had been mm. out of the home like three or four years there. I was, you know, making peanuts, just doing whatever I could get through college. And then about five years after that, I got married and we were looking for a car and we were going to buy it from my dad. And then we found somebody that was, because my dad lived like three hours away and we found somebody local and whatever. When I called him up to tell him, you know, I, so I'm like, I don't know, 25, 26 at the time. He just goes nuts. And I, and at that point I'm like, fuck you, I'm done. And uh, so we were um, estranged for probably 15 years after that. We didn't talk. Um, well, we had talked a little bit in, 93 or so when his second wife died of cancer and he was all he called me and he's all grieving and stuff and six months later he calls me again and i'm like did you go get help have you seen anybody have you talked to a therapist this is like dad i'm not a therapist i don't know what you're going through so there was always this kind of essence with our relationship that it was very one-sided it was like i me mine and everybody else really didn't matter. My mom didn't matter. And I didn't matter. You know, I, and I think that was, uh, you know, I forgive him now. Because like in 2010, I knew I was, I was still so disconnected that I had to try and make amends. You know, I had to try and find a way. So towards the end, you know, we kind of patched it up. But we still never really dealt with, you know, the invalidation, mm-hmm. the... Um, in the poor boundaries. So it was always what, give me, it's mine. It's mine. And it was kind of funny because it was kind of a wound that actually where I'm currently working is mm-hmm. one of the same. That was something that was, I was vulnerable to, mm-hmm. you know, in, in present sense. When I was working at a different job where I didn't have as much uh, stress or whatever, I just ended up in an environment that exploited all my, my uh, weaknesses. Which I think is even really, which is really great about this conversations that you're having is because those early vulnerabilities, if we don't get them healed, they can still be there because there could be somebody out there that's able to exploit them. And we, we'd like to think that there won't be, but I think that the more that we can emotionally educate people and help them heal as man, it's like the greatest tool ever. Self-love. I think it'll keep happening. I had that, I've had that experience a bunch of times where I felt like my bosses were very representative of my dad. And in particular, them just not seeing me for who I truly am or what I have to offer or seeing my assets as liabilities. There's some, a little accounting lingo for you there. But yeah, like just having bosses who view what I view to be as some of my greatest strengths, them seeing them as negatives. I think that whether it's like energetically, I almost feel like we get pulled into these situations. Um, but I think it's a it's a gift that it happens, right? Because I think it's like we're giving these we're given these opportunities to heal. Yeah, you know, my my buddy says it this way. He says like the lesson gets repeated until it's learned. Absolutely. Well, talk about what were the romantic relationship patterns that have come up in your life? I got lucky with my wife that she was able to put up with me for 24 years. God bless her. Yeah. 
she's a saint. <laughs> um, avoidant, mm -hmm. extremely avoidant, especially post-marriage. But, you know, I think what happened, what was really interesting is that I had met somebody in 2019, and that was the falling down of all the walls. That was the beginning of the decline and then coming into 2020 kind of like rising again where i was just i was so broken that i had to find a way out and i wasn't i didn't want to drink i didn't want to do anything i just wanted to heal you know i was i've been in therapy for five years and some of it was because i, I did get divorced and i wanted to be pro proactive about it some of it was when my dad was in 2017, my brother and I were responsible for his estate, and my dad had dementia at that time. So I was in, I was doing Alzheimer's support groups, and um, you know, and then I, in order to cope with kind of like the ending of my marriage, I, I got involved in some meetup groups. I did some traveling. I went to Nepal and um, in 2018, I went to Peru in 2019. But when I met this person, I was like madly in love and then it ended and then I fell apart. And um, why did it end? Oh, uh, I, I, I think it probably we started too fast. Yeah. We started mm -hmm. way too fast. And then that was like my emotional low point. Um, so I ended up doing some some neuropsych tests, they were going to put me on antidepressants. And um, they, I had two alternatives. I had this neuropsych test done, you know, because I was suffering from depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So what they said was, so when they wrote it off, they gave me two alternatives. They gave me alternative number one, which was antidepressants. And alternative number two was a mindfulness class. And um I my family's had some prior experience with antidepressants. I was not a big fan of what they did, so I decided to join this uh, mindfulness class, and um, that was in January of 2020. And it was just it was just like once an hour. It was an hour a week for a month, but in the at the same time, what I was doing is I was reading Joe Dispenza's book, um, how to break the how to break the habit of being yourself. And that one was really re revolutionary because it talks about the neuroscience of the brain and how mm -hmm. we can, if we can somehow ch change our thought patterns, this is how we, we can change ourselves. Mm -hmm. And you know that, cause I had the false belief that our brains were stagnant and that what we, that, the, that they were malleable and they couldn't be rerouted. And, and I think the visualization that that was teaching, well, because you get about halfway through the book and it starts teaching meditation practice. So I started that and I started with 20 minutes of silent meditation twice a day. And then, um, and then for my, my class regarding uh, um, the mindfulness, what they did had done is they gave you a reading list and, and podcasts to go with that. So um, one of them was 10% uh, happier. So I started listening to all the podcasts. Well, and then just when the pandemic started, one of the books was uh, John Kabat-Zinn's Full Catastrophe Living. I started reading that right when the pandemic hit. And I was like, holy crap. And what I really loved about that book and about mindfulness in general is it was, it was really gentle. 
It was like gentle for your experience. You know, it was like a caring book. But what I also liked about it, it was talking about how they were using neuroscience or meditation in tandem with people that are afflicted with illness, cancer, diabetes, hypertension. Because what I was really worried about when I got started in it, it was that I didn't want to get too woo-woo. If I do this, I, I didn't want to come off as some sort of loony, you know, <laughs> or some sort of, and that was what I really valued the science of it, that if we can somehow just be still and calm ourselves and just work on our breath and all this, and in my opinion, really counterintuitive to what we, uh, of the way that we live in the West. In the West, we are talking about doing, you know, striving, home, car, this. And now, we, and what we really, the, the skill that when times get tough is just to kind of just recenter ourselves, get within ourselves to, to, to emotionally soothe ourselves. And, um, and I'll tell you one thing I'm really grateful for is that there's a lot of people that are doing this writing, that are doing this teaching. I think there's so much information, positive information out there that can really help us heal. A lot of really great tools out there. If you want to numb yourself out and not do it, I mean, that's certainly your choice. I think that this kind of stuff, if we can empower people to heal, I think that's the best gift that we can do it. And I think that, I think the gift of encouragement and, you know, just look, people that are in tenuous situations that are, it, it might not be that easily done. You know, if you're, if you're in a physically abusive situation, it's a lot harder to heal if you're under threat, you know, so your safety is paramount first, but if you can have some stability and, you know, and I think self-belief too is really important that, you know, your ability to, you know, believe in yourself. And I think that, you know, like what you're doing is I think helping people believe in themselves. And I think that's, and that's kind of why I, I'm, I really love this stuff because I think if, I, you know, what I'd rather grow someone rather than tear them down. Because I wouldn't want to be torn down because I, I, I know how it feels. And um, I think that, uh, you, know, you know, just keep learning, you know, anything that you can put in your emotional toolbox, you know, try and get to safety or whatever, you know. Give me, give me a good shit show story. Oh, well, the one that I'm really like most, the most proud of is I was in Kathmandu. And it's, and we got, we were going to, this is 2018 and we we're hiking up to Mount Everest base camp, but we got to Kathmandu and it was like my first time that I was traveling internationally and they had these 20, 28 ounce beers called Mount Everest and Gorka. So I was like, hell yeah, let's party. So I'm like, <laughs> so I'm, like I'm drinking these beers. It's great. Having a party. And I'm at the bar talking to this Austrian chick. And it's like, you know, it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is great. And I don't know. We were up till like, there was like three or four of us. They were up till two or three in the morning, wandering the streets of this cat, downtown Kathmandu from our hotel. And then we got up the next morning. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so hungover. It's just a mess. So we get on a bus, and then we're touring through Kathmandu. It was beyond words. And so we're, I'm hungover. And then when they see you, like, these ladies are selling trinkets and stuff like there, and they just keep hounding you, and they're chasing after you until you buy it. So I, I'm buying, like, beads and stuff and bracelets. Ooh. 
showing your boobs like you're in New Orleans. <laughs> I, I didn't get any boobs, but okay. Yeah, but right. uh, they don't do that there. That's much more conservative. Um, but anyway, right. so so the next day we fly out. And then we're beginning our trek to Mount Everest uh, base camp. And anyway, we keep going up. And one day, I we were up at this town called Namche, which is at about 13,000 feet. And it's kind of like this little village, you know, and it's it's actually really freaking cool. But we go up on top, and then we can see Mount Everest down in the dis uh, out in the distance. And uh, so I'm hanging out there, just soaking up the rays. And I'm talking up the race <laughs> yeah, and, the, and the sun is just beating down on you. So I get back and I think I got sunstroke because, you know, like when you're up at that height that, you know, you don't have all the, you know, you're getting a lot more of the UV rays. So anyway, so we keep going up the mountain and we're, we're within two days. We're at about 16,000 feet in Ding Bush. And I'm so freaking sick. They put the things on my finger. My oxygen level is like 60%. And I'm fighting with the, the guides. I'm like, I can keep going. I can keep going. You know, my oxygen level. <laughs> and, then, and then and that last night, the sixth night on the trek, because it was going to be eight days to get to Everest and a uh, base camp. And uh, and there, and I'm like, going to the bathroom, hacking. I got all this crap. And then I'm like, I can't go on. <laughs> I'm done. You know, I didn't sleep that night and whatever. You know, my oxygen is so... So they put us in a chopper and they fly us down from um, Kathmandu. And um, I'm in the hospital with dehydration and altitude sickness and probably, uh, I don't know, a bronchitis or pneumonia at the same time. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm in this hospital for four days. So they, me and this other person that was on this track, she's in, in the, you know, we go to the hospital together. And, and it's and it's the shit show driving through Kathmandu because there's no traffic lights in Kathmandu. There's nothing. It's like a it's like this hive of you know just flows like a river of movement. It's like an ant farm. Yeah. And it, and you're it's just it was a it was so freaking <laughs> cool. So so I end up sleeping in the uh, I sleep for two days in the hospital, and they and what they do is they take my passport right. And uh, it's kind of a scam because the scam, I, this is so this is the best part of the story. So what they do is they coach you up and they say, listen, when the insurance company calls, you tell them you were the only one in the chopper, which is uh. complete bullshit. It's not true because they're always double billing the insurance companies. Mm. So I'm like, yes, I was the only one in the chopper because, you know, I want to get out of the country at some point yes. in time. I don't want to jeopardize me getting out. So I'm like, well, I'm the only one in the chopper. No problem. Well, in the meantime, they take my passport, right? A couple of days later, three more people come back and because they're done too, you know? So there's like five of us of our group that are in the hospital and they take all our names and all of our names on the board are international patient. So, so they, they're all getting itchy to get out. They all get out. And they won't release me. I'm stuck there for another day or whatever. And then, and then, and then, until the insurance company settled with them, they wouldn't give me my passport back. And that was that was like pretty bonkers. That was, that was a great experience, though. Yeah, I'm, I've never heard Katmandu said so many times. Yeah, it's great. It's a great time. So what what is like one? Um, 
a limiting belief that you're really set on overcoming or, you know, I think you've had so much growth. You know, after we had that uh, meeting the other day, you know, mm-hmm. I had listened to that stuff on shame, which I thought was mm-hmm. really, really valuable. That was, so I, I would say shame. I'm, that mm-hmm. was the one that, you know, I think the, one of the things I was learning in meditation practice is that they, when you struggle with a certain thought or emotion is work, you know, it's okay to feel it, to be with it. Mm-hmm. You know, some of it was mm-hmm. grief. Um, but yeah, so, you know, after, after that, uh, meeting that on Thursday, you know, I was listening to that stuff on shame and, you know, and it's really fun. I, I find it fascinating. The more that we dig into this stuff, it's like we're healing the, the more we look at it, the, you know, we're separated from it for so long, but when we, when we, when we can identify that feeling, that thought or that emotion and just spend time with it and work on it. And I, and I, and I, I don't, it's, it seems so counterintuitive because I think our, our, our I think our, a lot of our natural reaction is to run from it, you know, mm-hmm. and I think, and, and I think, I think to be with your feelings is probably the best service. You It might suck for a while, but I think if you're, if you stay with it, then I think it can heal faster. Avoiding mm-hmm. it, I think, can is just avoidance, you know, that's just that shame. Absolutely. Well, it has been such a pleasure having you in the group and you really do. I love hearing a guy talk about this shit. So, <laughs> and yeah, and you don't sound woo woo and you still seem very manly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's just really inspirational. Um, it's yeah. To see somebody, a guy and you're not old, but like, you know, there's like a lot of guys that there's not a lot of guys your age that are talking about this shit. So, or doing the work. So, um, it's really inspirational. Well, you know, I, I would say one book that was really inspirational to, for this was Terrence Reel's book. I don't want to talk about it because oh yeah, you were saying that, that, yeah. that book blew like my mind because Mm-hmm. of the way men in general shield themselves. And mm-hmm. I, I just thought that was, you know, that book was like eye-opening. I was freaking crying through it because halfway through it, I couldn't go on. It was like so freaking heavy because, you know, I think from one pr- particular reason is that we do cut ourselves off from ourselves. That was, that was my takeaway is like, you know, we have this, toxic masculinity that we're not supposed to talk about our emotions da 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 and i'm like what's that gotten me mm-hmm. you know and um and i think i think the other thing is too what is really helpful is it increases your language you know mm-hmm. and i think yeah I, I i think the more that you can articulate your experience the better off you are kind of like sharing it you know, maybe some people are ready for it. Some people are not. But for me, it, it was helpful because it made me capable of expressing mm-hmm. what I was going through. Well, thank so. you, Shit Show Scott. Thank you, Andrea. Well, that wraps up Shit Show Saturday. As always, sign up for the Patreon. That is where I host weekly support groups. And it's where you say thanks, Andrea, for all that you do. Patreon.com slash adult child. Follow me on TikTok and Instagram at adult child pod and give me a damn five star rating on Apple and Spotify. And I will see y'all shit shows on Wednesday. Bye.
feel slow now. Don't let 